Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. We're joined today by Justice Robert Beach Jones, the Chief Judge of Common Law in the New South Wales Supreme Court. Also joining us is Justice Derek Price, the Chief Judge of the District Court. Both judges have extensive experience as criminal judges and have been involved in the sentencing of many offenders. Today we're going to talk to them about the appeal processes for sentence matters. Firstly today we are joined by Justice Beach Jones. Good morning Peter. Uh, Judge, how long have you been a judge of the Supreme Court? Well, I've appointed on 12th of March 2012. Now, you're now the Chief Judge at Common Law, but I think you were originally appointed as a trial judge in the Common Law Division of the Court. Is that right? That's right. What, what does that mean? What, what does a Common Law judge do? Right, so the Supreme Court structure actually, I think, is modelled on the English structure of what they call the Queen's Bench and Chancery. And at a trial level, we split the court at a trial level in half to the Common Law Division and the Equity Division. The Common Law Division picks up uh, crime, uh, but it also picks up such areas as personal injury, a lot of administrative law, a lot of statutory appeals in various areas, including some areas of crime, uh, and some types of civil and commercial cases. The Equity Division picks up uh, uh, land disputes, will disputes, and a lot of commercial disputes. And at administrative level, the, the Chief Judge of Common Law supervises the approximately 22 judges in the Common Law Division who make up that division, and as we'll discuss, also sit on the Court of Criminal Appeal. So you do trials in the Supreme Court? I do a mixture of, me personally, do a mixture of trials. I also sit in the Court of Appeal, and I sit in the Court of Criminal Appeal. Uh, in terms of, if we mean by criminal trials, I do less now as Chief Judge, but I did do them as a trial judge. And, and what crimes are tried in the Supreme Court? Well, the, the crimes that are tried in the Supreme Court, uh, we have exclusive uh, jurisdiction over murder, all murder trials that come here. We also do uh, high particular forms of terrorism trials. And there's also a scope for uh, the prosecutors, sometimes the accused, to ask the Chief Justice to take up cases that might otherwise be tried in the District Court that are seen of some particular or special importance. The most common example of that is particular white-collar cases like uh, corruption or insider trading uh, or some sort of corporate malfeasance, but every now and then there is just a particular case that has some novelty or uh, particular public interest value. Now murder trials, are they tried with a jury? Most murder trials are tried with the jury, but in New South Wales, uh, an accused can elect to be tried by a judge alone. Uh, that will happen if the prosecution agrees or if the judge decides it's in the interest of justice to do so. So as there have been some cases, and I've, said, I've done uh, two myself, where I've, I've, heard a, I've written a judgment in a trial of a murder, accused charged with murder, which was with no jury. And trials in the district court, uh, I take it, cover a, a much broader range of... Trials in the District Court pretty much cover everything, if I could say, between uh, the upper end of the local court's jurisdiction, which can be uh, break and enters, um, 
uh, things as that serious as that as in some indecent assaults and uh, some uh, robberies like robbery from the person so everything from that level pretty much all the way up to uh, just below murder so that could be attempted murder um, robbery uh, sexual assault um, some forms of white collar crime indeed some terrorism cases are a very very broad range of criminal mm. trials and i think we, the lawyers talk about jury trials as trials on indictment and we'll talk about what that means in another podcast episode but uh, i want to look today at the question of appeals sure if uh, someone has been convicted after a jury trial so the jury's found them guilty and it's then the responsibility of the trial judge to sentence them. What rights of appeal does someone have after they've been convicted following a jury trial? Well, so that would be, be a jury trial in the district court or the Supreme Court. Well, they have a, a we, we'll call it a right. They have to theoretically seek leave, but they'll, they'll effectively get an appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal. And the Court of Criminal Appeal is a is, is effectively a, a division of the Supreme Court, but it's actually theoretically a separate court created under the Criminal Appeal Act. The Chief Justice of New South Wales nominates three judges to sit on that appeal. Usually, uh, that will be two judges from the Common Law Division, and there'll be a third judge uh, who's presiding. That'll commonly be either the Chief Justice, a member of the Court of Appeal, uh, myself, or sometimes a senior judge of the Common Law Division. And am I right in thinking that you have the day-to-day -day responsibility for the functioning of that court? Well, I'll be careful. It's the Chief Justice's court, but yes, <laughs> I have the day-to-day -day responsibility of the division. In practical terms, either I or sometimes a senior judge of the division will preside half the month in the Court of Criminal Appeal, and the other half the month will be either the Chief Justice or another judge of appeal. So someone who's been convicted can appeal against their conviction because there's been a, an alleged error of law or what about fact? Well there are three uh, three broad grounds one is that the verdict was unreasonable uh, another is that there was some error of law in the conduct of the trial and the third is kind of a catch-all that is that there was a miscarriage of justice and in your point about the facts generally the appeals on facts that is look the law was okay, but really the evidence against me wasn't strong enough. That's usually covered by the first ground, that the verdict was unreasonable. Right. And in terms of the number of, if I can call them this, conviction appeals in a year, how many of those would be dealt with by the Court of Criminal Appeal? I think all up the Court of Criminal Appeal would do about 380 cases altogether, but of those, I think about 90 to 100 would be conviction appeals. No. And if it's a judge alone trial, I take it the judge who hears that trial has to give reasons they for do. their decision. Yeah. Are the appeal rights any different uh, from a judge alone trial? The appeal rights are theoretically no different, but uh, in a practical sense, uh, there is uh, more for the court to have a look at because you have the actual reasons of the, uh, of the uh, trial judge. If you've got a jury trial, all you have is the judge's summing up, which is the where the judge tells the jury uh, the legal principles that apply and basically outlines each, each side's case and then you get the jury's answer. Whereas in a judge alone trial you have the more fulsome reasons and you know why uh, the verdict came about as it did. 
Now, I, I take it someone who's been convicted can appeal not only against their conviction but also against their sentence if they say the sentence is too high. Mm. Uh, what rights do they have to bring that appeal? Well, as I said, they, they have to theoretically seek leave to appeal, uh, but in practical terms, um, it's very rare to refuse someone leave with, without ever hearing really the substance of their appeal. And in terms of the grounds, it's really two broad ways of looking at it. One is what we would call a particular error, that is a failure to take into account something that should have been taken into account or a misconstruction of the sentencing statute or getting some particular fact uh, clearly wrong. And then a more uh, catch-all that even if there was no specific error, the sentence was too high or as we would say, manifestly excessive. Now, I think sentence appeals can be dealt with by two judges rather than three. Does that happen very much these days? Uh, practically speaking, we don't do that. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with all the historical reasons, but the possibility you'd have two sit on an appeal and that one would that each disagree, and you'd have to bring a third judge in, meant that in practical terms we just moved to have three judges here. I think it might have also had something to do with a backlog of cases at some stage, so that two was a more efficient use of the resources. I'm sure that was the reason then, the way, in recent times it's, it's fallen into disrepute, but anyway. And do you have any stats on success rates? I don't have them to my mind. I really have to, I have to do it as approximately, I would suspect that the number of said appeals that are successful would probably be in the... 30 to 40 percent range and I suspect convictions would be in the 20 to 30 percent range. I would add I think sentence appeals have a pretty high success rate because as a general view New South Wales has one of the most complex sentencing regimes anywhere in the world. Now what about the Crown? Uh, we talk about the uh, accused or the, the convicted person having an entitlement to appeal. But what about the Crown? What, what rights does the Crown have to appeal? Well, uh, I'll deal with conviction first because it's logical, but uh, historically the prosecution does not have a right of appeal against uh, a convictions, although in New South Wales, under one particular provision of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, they can actually appeal uh, where the trial judge directs the jury uh, to return a verdict of not guilty and then they can appeal on a question of law uh, or question of law alone and that's really directed to a particularly a rare type of case where a judge takes it out of the hands of the jury on on some question of principle and then the, the prosecution can appeal because those type of appeals are quite uncommon when it comes to sentence the prosecution can appeal and although they can uh, they can appeal against a sentence and although they can raise particular errors in the way that the, the sentencing judge may have dealt with it, broadly, uh, the most common one, and really the court will not intervene unless it's thought that the sentence was uh, manifestly inadequate, that is, really far too low. Um, and I think there are some probably less used rights of the Crown um, under the criminal Appeal and Review Act. Uh, one, I think, is uh, a provision that entitles the Crown to bring an appeal in a serious matter where there's been new evidence discovered. Is that, is that right? That, well, that's very rare, and indeed the only case that I'm aware of that 
uh, was a, uh, an, a where they sought to do that was in a, a fairly uh, famous and notorious case in New South Wales, uh, I think relating to uh, a person who was acquitted of three uh, of the murders of some young Indigenous people. But there is a a, a a very rare power to for the Crown to apply the Court of Criminal Appeal to retry someone where they've been acquitted uh, on the basis that there is, since the time of their trial, uh, fresh evidence. Uh, that is a, an exceptional one because traditionally if someone's been acquitted of an offence, that, that, ca that cannot be re-agitated in another trial. Uh, this provision, as I said, came in as an exception to that, uh, but it, uh, as I know, it's only ever sought to have been invoked once and was unsuccessful. Yeah. Now, for the Crown to succeed in a sentence appeal, what does it have to have to show? Well, at, uh, they really have to show two things. I mean, well, that shows three things. Usually, have to show error by the sentencing judge. That is some uh, some mistake. That error can be that the sentence was manifestly uh, too low. Uh, it can be other forms of error that they of the kind I talked about earlier. But to have the court intervene and re-sentence, uh, the court will only do that if the, if the sentence was manifestly inadequate, and they will only do that if the court, if the, sorry, the Crown has persuaded the court that it shouldn't exercise what's known as the residual discretion to dismiss the appeal. Now, it's a bit of a double negative there, but the, court, the, the prosecution has to persuade the court that there's no reason uh, not to exercise the discretion. And that, that really comes up with things like the court will exercise that discretion if, say, the prosecution has been too slow in bringing up an appeal against sentence. So if they've let someone uh, languish for a period of time in custody, believing that the sentence they've got is the sentence that they will serve, uh, and, yet, and then many, many, many months later, without putting them on notice, the Crown says, hang on, we think that sentence was too low. Well, that might be a circumstance where the Court of Criminal Appeal might say, yes, we do think that sentence was too low, but we put this person through too much by letting them believe that that was going to be their sentence and they won't intervene. And one of the questions that exercises the minds, I know, of the general public very often is the question of new trials. Um, if, uh, if a person's been convicted and goes to the Court of Criminal Appeal, does the court have the right, if it's persuaded that error has occurred, to acquit the person? The court has the, I would never use the word right, the power to acquit someone, depending on what the problem with the trial was. So if the, if the, if the appellant persuades the court that the verdict was unreasonable, then in the ordinary course, the Court of Criminal Appeal will quash the conviction and enter an acquittal. Because we just don't allow prosecutions to rerun cases for the sake of it. If there was a problem because the evidence wasn't good enough, that's the end of it. If the appellant, however, persuades the court that what happened was some legal error in the course of the trial, say the trial judge told the jury that the, uh, what the elements of an offence were and that, that was uh, wrong in law, then the starting point from the Court of Criminal Appeal will be well, sure, your trial uh, miscarried, but the public interest would require that this go back for a further trial, and then it'll be a matter for the 
Director of Public Prosecutions as to whether they'll pursue a, a further trial. In some cases where, say, this may be the second or third time this has happened, the Court of Criminal Appeal will say, well, look, hang on, enough is enough. Yes, there was an error in this trial, but we will not direct that there be a new trial. That will be the end of it. So does the court then enter an acquittal, or what happens? Uh, the, no, the court just sets aside the conviction and there'll be no new trial. Uh, sometimes they'll enter an acquittal, otherwise they direct that there'll be no new trial and they'll have the benefit of the presumption of innocence. Um, in many cases, another trial would be a burden, of course, for the accused, but also for any person giving evidence for the prosecution. I think there are special rules that relate to sexual assault trials, are there? What There's a special rule uh, that enables a victim, where a victim of a sexual assault uh, has given evidence at a first trial and the Court of Criminal Appeal sets aside the verdict because the, the type of error that I've been talking about, there's a capacity for at the further trial their, ev their evidence from the first trial to be replayed being if it was recorded or the transcript to be read out. But it's not inviolable and sometimes it may be thought necessary that they, depending on the attitude of the victim and what the error was in the first trial, that they may have to give evidence further again or it might be the director may say we won't put the person through that again. Mm. Uh, but there is a capacity to do that, it's just not inviolable. Yeah, it'd be a pretty great burden for many complainants in say sexual assault cases to have to subject, be subjected to cross-examination a second time. Well, it's very much a burden to re have to relive it again. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, there's no doubt about that. No doubt, uh, I must say, a, a very common position in the Court of Criminal Appeal in weighing these things up is to, is to direct there be a new trial, but on the understanding that the Director of Public Prosecutions, who has the direct dealings with the victim, will consider very carefully the position of the victim as to whether there can be a trial without the victims giving further evidence, and if there can't be, whether there will be a new trial. And I presume and hope that the Director does, directors, the people in the Director's office will speak very carefully, closely with the victim about I'm sure they do. They've got a whole, I think they've got a whole uh, uh, section that deals with the problems. Oh, no doubt they do. And, and I've got to stand, and we the court don't, so we are, we are not in a position to make any, uh, any of those assessments. There may be some victims who are very determined that they will give evidence because mm -hmm. they feel very strongly about it and there are, no, there are many victims who are particularly vulnerable. Now one question that people often ask is what happens in relation to costs? Let's just say someone's been convicted after a four-week trial, which is pretty expensive, uh, but that conviction is set aside by the Court of Criminal Appeal. Is there any right to, or entitlement to costs? Uh, well, the short answer is no. Uh, there is an ability to go back to, uh, at the end of a, a case at trial level, to ask a trial judge to make an order for costs in a criminal case that's resolved in favour of an accused person. But that are very rare. Usually, has to involve uh, um, some uh, poor conduct on behalf of the crown or the pursuit of a case that was particularly hopeless. But at the court, of, at the the, the appeal level, uh, the short answer is no. There's no capacity for costs. It, crime is very much a jurisdiction where there is uh, we don't uh, make cost orders. Mm. Um, now, just looking again at, at the 
role of the Court of Criminal Appeal. If someone has been convicted but brings an appeal, uh, I think sometimes they're allowed, and they've been sentenced to, to imprisonment, sometimes they'll be allowed bail while the appeal is coming on. Is that common or rare? Or I think the relevant test in the Bail Act for a person in those circumstances is exceptional circumstances. Mm. And so, uh, although a lot of people do try, it is relatively rare. The type of circumstances where someone will get bail uh, will, would usually be a case where they received a relatively short sentence, like something like six months or eight months. And if they could show to the court that they had a reasonable basis for their appeal, and the, that may get them bail, provided there's no other particular risk, because the feeling may be, well, your appeal will be pretty much worthless if you've already served your sentence before then. Now, leaving aside those circumstances, uh, people, particularly with people with long sentences, they may try, but it's, it's a very rare, very rare, almost unheard of circumstance that they will get bail pending appeal. And I must say, that's very different to a number of other countries, including the United States it's very common to get bail pending appeal. Now I think there's also a power in the Court of Criminal Appeal when someone brings an appeal that fails um, to order that their time uh, while awaiting appeal doesn't count for their sentences. Is that power utilised these days at all? I've never seen that power exercised. Uh, I hear stories of time long ago where some judges had threatened to exercise the power but uh, I personally couldn't envisage what type of circumstances we'd ever really say to an accused person or a, a convicted person, well, you had a right to bring your appeal, uh, but we're going to punish you by saying that the time you spent in jail before the appeal came on won't serve as part of your sentence. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I guess uh, the final question in relation to the powers of the Court of Criminal Appeal is is there any capacity or power in the court if a convicted person brings an appeal against sentence for the court to increase the sentence? Uh, there is theoretically a power that if the person comes up and that says my sentence, there was an error in it or my sentence was too low and the court said, well, no, in fact, we think you're... Uh, sorry, they say the sentence was too high for the court to say, no, no, well, we think your sentence was too low and we're going to increase it. As a matter of theory, that, that power exists. In fact, and the High Court has confirmed this, uh, the, uh, firstly, the obligation upon the court, if it formed that view, would be to tell the person they formed that view to give them the opportunity to withdraw the appeal. Uh, and they've also told us that if, we're, if we are in the... Uh, comfort our, or our room writing away and even if we find an error and we're starting to look at the sentence again if we think it's too high our obligation is to dismiss the appeal so in practical terms the sentence. Uh, there is theoretically a power that if the person comes up and that says my sentence there was an error in it or my sentence was too low and the court said well no in fact we think you're uh, sorry, they say the sentence was too high for the court to say, no, no, well, we think your sentence was too low and we're going to increase it. As a matter of theory, that, that power exists. In fact, and the High Court has confirmed this, uh, the, uh, firstly, the obligation upon the court, if it formed that view, would be to tell the person they formed that view to give them the opportunity to withdraw the appeal. 
Um, and they've also told us that if we're if we are in the uh, comfort of our room writing away and even if we find an error and we're starting to look at the sentence again if we think it's too low our obligation is to dismiss the appeal so in practical terms uh, uh, someone who appeals against their sentence uh, will I can't really envisage any circumstances in which they'll receive an increase as opposed to, of course to a prosecution appeal which is uh, yeah that's quite a common outcome is there any capacity for the Court of Criminal Appeal to look at the circumstances of the convicted person at the time of the appeal as opposed to when they were originally sentenced? Um, the answer to that's not so straightforward. So, um, firstly, I think I talked earlier about finding a specific, that one of the grounds for people when they appeal against sentences is to try and find some specific error. If they were able to find some error, including a legal error, made by the sentencing judge, then the High Court has, has, has uh, confirmed that the task of the Court of Criminal Appeal then is to conduct a complete resentencing. And when we can, so we, we, we effectively put aside the, the sentence imposed by the sentencing judge, not the findings, but the sentence, the sentence that's imposed, and do it again ourselves. And when we do that task, we very much do consider an update, as it were, on their circumstances, including uh, very commonly how they've behaved in custody. So that is, has that shown that they were, they are in fact on a path towards rehabilitation? We also consider what their what conditions they've experienced in custody, and a very common one now is the difficulties with COVID. If they don't establish that form of error, then the the ability to consider something that's happened since the time they are of sentence is really quite narrow. There are, there are some particular cases, particularly people who have had particular health conditions, who were sentenced on the basis that they were going to be uh, well, reasonably cared for to a reasonable standard in the prison system, and then that proved to be, that promise proved to be wholly illusory. They have been able to uh, establish an error for that reason, and the court will consider that. But those, those cases are fairly narrowly confined because the one thing the Court of Criminal Appeal is not there to do is simply to start by simply resentencing everyone by saying, well, this is what happened to you since the time you were sentenced. Sentencing is primarily done by sentencing judges and the, the Court of Criminal Appeal would literally be swamped if it was simply there to simply relook at the circumstances of every prisoner. You know, is, the, is the Court of Criminal Appeal sitting every day? It's, it's three days a week, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. It's right. a very, very... Uh, there'd be a competition between it and the Court of Appeal to be the busiest intermediate Court of Appeal in the country. But a common day in the in the Court of Criminal Appeal is to hear one conviction appeal and then three sentence appeals. So that's four, four cases in a day and three days a week, twelve cases. Yeah, twelve cases a twelve cases a week in a common week. And it's a lot of writing for the chief judge, isn't it? That's a lot of writing for the chief judge. It's a lot of writing for all the judges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now. It's often not appreciated, in fact, it's mostly overlooked, but more than 90% of criminal trials are conducted in the local court, and they're all judge-alone trials. Uh, now, I think there is a right, which I, I don't need to talk to you about, we'll talk to Justice Price, who's the Chief Judge of the District Court, about the right of appeal directly to the District Court from a conviction and sentence in the local court. But there is, I think, a limited right 
to come from the local court to the Supreme Court or to Court of Criminal Appeal, I think. Can you help me there? There is a series of appeal rights on effectively on what confined to questions of law under the Crimes Appeal and Review Act from the local court. Uh, that includes the power to appeal to the district court you mentioned, but also on questions of law to the Supreme Court, but also to the Land and Environment Court in some of their their uh, environmental regulatory offences. And they come to a single judge of the Common Law Division, and we'd probably hear one or two a week that come up from the, uh, the local court in that jurisdiction, and that's usually about some question of principle, uh, question of law that wants to be raised. Now, they either come up uh, because often legal aid identifies some question affecting a lot of criminal prosecutions in the local court that they want to raise, or it's a means by which the prosecution can raise a question of law that's led to a, an acquittal in the local court that they can bring to the Supreme Court because they cannot appeal to the district court against an acquittal. They can appeal against sentence but not against acquittal. So by that way, one way or another, we do get appeals direct from the local court in its criminal jurisdiction and its criminal jurisdiction is very broad. They have a power to... Uh, for single offences up to two years, but to impose uh, an aggregate sentence up to three years. And there is in fact some particular offences where they can go up to five They go up to five, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, just so we understand it, the, so the Crown has a right after an acquittal in the local court to bring an appeal on a question of law? In some circumstances, yes. It provided which could, which the, could upset the acquittal? It did. It, it, it could send it back and yeah. require the, the magistrate to do it again. Right. And, and I think historically that's a bit more justified because we're not dealing with a, an acquittal by a jury which is, has a particular status. It's an anomaly though, isn't it, really? It's uh, just only started to be eroded by statute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and those cases are heard by just one, one judge. Common, common law judge. Judge in the Common Law Division, yeah. Right, and would there be a right of appeal to, to the Court of Criminal Appeal or to the Court of Appeal? To the Court of Appeal from those ones. Yeah, which is another strange anomaly in the system, isn't it? Well, it's a, if you wanted to put together a flowchart, it would not be a pretty sight. Uh, and equally, as you mentioned, the District Court Appeal, from there, uh, an appeal from the District Court, hearing an appeal from the local court in crime, goes to the Court of Appeal, uh, and there has to be a writ that shows jurisdictional error. Which is the old form of 19th century, I think, form of appeal. Is the old 19th century form of yeah. appeal, and that there is a, and we are still fighting about the boundaries of that form of appeal. Judges don't fight, do they? Well, arguing or having mild disagreements. No, I yeah. see. <laughs> now, the only other thing I suppose we haven't talked about is the right of appeal, if it is the right of appeal, to the High Court. How could that come about? Um, well, it, from the Court of Criminal Appeal and from the Court of Appeal, people can, uh, 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 a litigant, be the prosecutor in this case, or a uh, convicted person can seek special leave to appeal uh, to the High Court. Uh, I, I, there is a theoretical possibility of going directly from a Supreme Court case to the High Court, but we put that aside. It's quite common, it's a, it's, it's a very significant part of the High Court's jurisdiction hearing applications for special leave to appeal from both the Court of Criminal Appeal of this state and equivalent decisions made in uh, made in other states. I think that's a development of the last 15 or 20 years. 
don't think it was that common in earlier days. Well, indeed, as you say, the last 15 to 20 years, because 30 years ago they almost never heard an appeal in a sentencing case, mm. and they would have heard many, a number of appeals from New South Wales in sentencing cases over the last mm. uh, uh, 15 uh, mm. years. And it's uh, crime, criminal law would be, my guess, would be about a quarter of the High Court's jurisdiction. To get special leave, uh, it is ordinarily required to show uh, a question of public importance, although in crime, the High Court will, if they consider that there is a, a strong case of an injustice, hear an appeal as well. I think there's been a lot of discussion in recent years in the High Court about the provision that deals with unreasonable verdicts. Uh, and I think the consequence of what the High Court's done in recent times is to allow greater intervention by the Court of Criminal Appeal and by the High Court itself, is that, is that right? Um, I think that would be uh, debatable. I think one of the counter view would be that they were applying the principles that they often did. There's no doubt that the decision in uh, Pell, I think, brought home to people that that uh, jurisdiction still exists and the uh, that was a case very much looking at the particular facts of that case, but that power's always been there. There is a debate about the various formulations of the test to be applied by a court of criminal appeal when applying that unreasonable verdict. Um, the High Court expresses it in different ways at different times, but they all, uh, uh, I think the court would say yes, but they're all uh, describing the same approach. Well, as I understand it, though, the, the court started to change course a little uh, after the uh, full circumstances of the Chamberlain case emerged. You may not be familiar with that. It's probably before that. my time, I yeah, it probably say. is before your time. As a judge, certainly. But, yeah. of course, um, there was a conviction there. There was an appeal. Ultimately, found its way to the High Court. The High Court refused to intervene. Uh, and then, of course, there was an inquiry and ultimately uh, uh, there was a full pardon because everyone was satisfied that they had not committed the crime. It said that that's the point at which the High Court started to look again at its power to intervene because the verdict was unreasonable. But uh, that's perhaps a bit of history we don't need to... Well, that's, that is a bit of history. I mean, the, the description of the power of the... The High Court's description of the power of a criminal appeal court to intervene in M against the Queen is, I think, probably seen as the high watermark of the court's power. And that talks about the court conducting an independent review of the evidence itself. At other times, they use a phrase whether for the court to determine whether it was reasonably open for the jury to conclude. Now, there are some who see differences. I think that the High Court would say that there are no differences. Thank you, Judge. That was an interesting discussion. We're now joined by Justice Derek Price, who is the Chief Judge of the District Court. He's going to talk to us about the District Court's role in hearing appeals in relation to sentence matters, particularly appeals from the local court. Good morning, Judge. Good morning, Peter. Uh, Judge, uh, as I understand it, you have a very interesting judicial career. Can you just briefly tell us wh where it started and, and, and where you are now? Certainly. I was appointed a magistrate in 1988, uh, then a judge of the district court in about 1999. Then I became the chief magistrate of New South Wales in 2002. And in 2006, I was appointed a judge of the Supreme Court. 
and I served under you as Chief Judge of Common Law and in 2014 I became the Chief Judge of the District Court and President of the Dust Diseases Tribunal. I'm still a judge of the Supreme Court and still sit regularly in the Court of Criminal Appeal. That sounds like a fairly extensive exposure to the law, but I assume in each of those roles you've uh, done quite a bit of work uh, in crime, is that right? Is that right? Certainly, very much so. As you may recall, at my time as a judge of the Supreme Court, in particular I um, was a trial judge in many murder trials, and I have sat now on the Court of Criminal Appeal uh, since, uh, for would be now, some 16 years. And of course, when I was a judge of the district court, I was also a trial judge, and as a magistrate, I was engaged in sentencing on a very regular basis. How many criminal cases in a year would the district court manage? Well, as a pending criminal trial caseload, we have between uh, 1,600 to 2,200 criminal trials a year. And so far as pending uh, sentence caseload, we also have close to 1,000 pending uh, people to sentence each year. In addition to that, the district court is the court of appeal from the local court, both for severity appeals and conviction appeals. Your court receives appeals from decisions by way of conviction and sentence from the local court? That, that's right. The, um, the uh, appeal process for what we refer to as severity appeals, that is when the um, defendant in the local court uh, complains about the length of the sentence, the severity of it, whatever it be, um, then he or she can appeal to the district court. The hearing in the district court is what it is a hearing de novo, in other words, I'll explain that. It is not just done on the papers, essentially, this is a severity appeal on what has been done in the local court. The uh, appellant, the defendant, the appellant, as we refer to them when they arrive in the district court and can produce new evidence and can give oral evidence before the district court judge. Judge, couldn't you talk to us a little about conviction appeals? So far as conviction appeals are concerned, uh, in proceedings in the local court, as in all court proceedings, there's a transcript. In other words, what everybody said in the proceedings in the local court uh, recorded, and then there's a transcript produced. That transcript is produced to the district court judge. This is a conviction appeal. In other words, the appellate is not um, appealing only against the sentence, but also about the very fact of, it, of the offence being found established by the magistrate. And um, it is done on the transcript of the papers in the, uh, of the hearing in the local court. The parties are asked to provide, um, uh, to identify the issues that uh, cause that cause their complaint of um, wrongful conviction, and um, then usually it's done by way of argument on the papers. There is an ability to prevent fresh evidence in limited circumstances.
what option does the district court judge have when dealing with the sentence appeal? The district court judge can either confirm the sentence imposed by the magistrate in the local court or can vary the sentence in any particular way. The judge has that independent discretion to do that. Thank you, Judge, for your time today. You have been listening to Justice Beach Jones and Justice Price on the topic of sentencing appeals. This podcast is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available at the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan, Chair of the Council. Thank you for listening. Thank you.